Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome, welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher, author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. So grateful to have you with me today. Thank you for sharing out this podcast with friends and family that you love, that you feel may benefit from it, the reviews and all the great stuff that's helping us grow. Another reminder that the sale is still on until the end of August for our Mothers of Discernment first annual MDM celebration event. It will be on October 19th in Provo, Utah, and we would love to see you there. Some of the things that I'm going to talk about today will tie into those elements of discernment that we'll discuss all day. And uh, I think you'll see again how important it is to not just have on our minds that discernment is important, but to engage in the dialogue so that we can be better at it. So I want to read you a quote, and I'm going to not tell you who the author is. And at the end of this podcast, we're going to tie everything back together. I'm going to tell you who said this and when he said it and why, and what it has to do with what we're going to talk about for a few minutes today. And here it is. What is the end of our revolution? The tranquil enjoyment of liberty and equality, the reign of the eternal justice, the laws of which are graven, not on marble or stone, but in the hearts of men, even in the heart of the slave who has forgotten them, and in that of the tyrant who disowns them. Now, I admittedly have a very big task in front of me today. I've got to convince you of something that 150 years ago was so ingrained in our culture that to bring it up would have just sounded not only redundant, but a little bit ridiculous. What I'm going to talk about for the next few minutes was such a foregone conclusion 100 to 150 years ago that it was pretty obvious to every thinking person. But it isn't something that's talked about today. It's not taught in our schools. It's not part of the public framework. Very few people even understand that ideas really do rule the world and what that means and why that's so important. This is Susan Wise Bauer. She says, the density of ideas in Plato or Shakespeare or Thomas Hardy frustrates the mind that comes to them ready to draw conclusions. To tackle a course of reading successfully, we have to retrain our minds to grasp new ideas by first understanding them, then evaluating them, and finally forming our own opinions. And so I want to focus in on a couple key phrases that she uses here in this quote. First of all, the density of ideas. In Plato, Shakespeare, Thomas Hardy, other great authors. And um, this concept that these great works are replete with a multiplicity of ideas. And that when we go into them, our minds need to be trained to grasp these ideas. Now, why does this matter? This is Robert Hutchins. He says, the goal toward which Western society moves is the civilization of the dialogue. The spirit of the Western civilization is the spirit of inquiry. Its dominant element is the logos. Nothing is to remain undiscussed. 
Everybody is to speak his mind. No proposition is to be left unexamined. The exchange of ideas is to be held, is held to be the path to the realization of the potentialities of the race. Again, the exchange of ideas is held to be the path through which we realize the potentialities of the race. He goes on to say, these books are the means of understanding our society and ourselves. They contain the great ideas that dominate us without our knowing it. So the title of this podcast is Ideas Rule the World. And the reason that this is such an unknown concept is because we don't really have a framework for what an idea is and we don't understand that ideas, the the most potent ideas that come from the most brilliant minds are really what are shaping our culture. So let's back up a little bit and let's go back to ancient Greece. And let's think about a man named Solon. And Solon has some new ideas. Athens is on the brink of civil war. Draco was just kind of a tyrant and everyone's sick of him. And they turn to Solon as kind of the voice of reason, as as an individual who can implement new important ideas. And some of his new ideas are to redistribute the land, to make rape and other crimes against women illegal, to let indebted slaves go, to cancel all debts, and to make it illegal to borrow money on the security of a person. He mints new coins that are more pure and more widely distributed and accepted. He standardized the weights and measures, and he encourages trade. Solon has this fundamental idea that people are more equal than everyone thinks that they really are. I mean, to cancel debts, let indebted slaves go, and not let people borrow on the security of a person, that is a revolutionary idea. Slavery still exists in the world, has always existed in the world, and the level at which, you know, people enslave other people is, is dependent really on the dominant ideas of the culture. And so Solon comes in and he says, you know what? We shouldn't be able to do really horrible things to women. And we shouldn't be able to um, allow people to sell themselves into slavery, to sell their spouses or their children into slavery, because these these indentured slaves and these women are more valuable than that. And so this becomes Athens. The great power, kind of the founder of the Western world, the culture that eventually developed, you know, the had a golden age and some of the greatest thinkers who've ever lived, who came up with incredible ideas that became part of the way that we think about ourselves came through Athens, you know? And so what's interesting to think about in terms of what kind of power ideas have is that side by side with Solon, there's another city not too far away in Greece called Sparta. 
And these two men are living right about the same time, becoming in charge of their city-states right about the same time. And Lysurgis has different ideas. Lysurgis says, let's make a military state so that we can be the most powerful force in the world. Let's make sure that we can fight off whatever foe might come our way. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to wrench boys from their families at a very young age. And we're going to test and train them. And if they don't make it, if they die, they die. And we're going to have these men live together in barracks all through their youth years and be cut off from their families and from the women in their lives. And we'll develop this really powerful military state. A completely different idea about what matters most, about what a city or a state or a nation should look like, about where people should put their time and their money and their energy. And it's fascinating because this, these ideas about what a nation should look like did not produce great thinkers great artisans, great architecture. You don't go to Sparta for those things. You go to Athens for those things. Because these ideas weren't as good as Solon's ideas. These ideas weren't in line with as many principles as Solon's ideas were in line with. And in both instances, the power of these individuals, their intellect, their persuasiveness, their articulateness, was was so powerful as to persuade an entire group of people to follow these ideas. They both like were looked up to and honored by their civilizations. They had you know, statues in the main square and they were talked about as the founders of their city-states. And yet the ideas that they promoted were so different and the results of those ideas were so diametrically different. And so we go back to this concept that ideas rule the world. And the reason that this is so important is because today ideas are being produced by very intelligent, very, very intelligent people. And they're being thought through, they're being reasoned out, they're being put forward in what seems like a very reasonable, logical, you know, or, or powerful package. And people are embracing those ideas. So here's, here's back to, um, here's back to Robert Hutchins. He says, the liberally educated man comprehends the ideas that are relevant to the basic problems and that operate in the basic fields of subject matter. He knows what is meant by soul, state, God, beauty, and by the other terms that are basic to the discussion of fundamental issues. He has some notion of the insights that these ideas, singly or in combination, provide concern, concerning human experience. So who's Robert Hutchins and why am I quoting him today? So Robert Hutchins um, was one of the youngest university presidents, um, University of Chicago uh, or it was a Chicago university. I can't remember the exact title. Um, and he had 
gone to Yale and become a quote Yale man. And then he had gone on to law school and he said he didn't really get much of an education until he went to law school. And then he gets introduced to Mortimer Adler and some other men and they put their heads together and they realize, you know, um, the key ideas about who human beings are and what metaphysics means and the nature of God and first principles, it's, it's being lost. Now this is, this is turn of the century. This is early 1900s early 20th century. And so they decide to try to revive um, this great conversation that has gone on in the West forever, for, for, since, since Greece, since Homer. And, um, and he's part of this whole movement that eventually became the great books of the Western world movement, if you've heard about that. And what's cool about it is that what they did was they had all these scholars study the most important books that have ever been written. And they pulled from those books key ideas that these great thinkers talked about over and over and over and over again. They narrowed it down to 102 ideas. And then they wrote a Satopicon, that's the first two books of the great book set, to, to lay out each of these ideas, to try to give a summary of these ideas throughout Western civilization, and then to give the um, resources in each of the great books for when people had talked about them. Ideas like democracy, or beauty, or angels, or love, or um, you know any number of great ideas. There were 102 that it was built around. Uh, and so, this is, Hutchins goes on to say, the liberally educated man has a mind that can operate well in all fields. He may be a specialist in one field, but he can understand anything important that is said in any field and can see and use the light that it sheds upon his own. The liberally educated man is at home in the world of ideas and in the world of practical affairs too, because he understands the relation of the two. Now, this will make a little bit more sense to you if I give you a little more context for what I mean when I say that ideas rule the world and that these ideas are swirling around us and we don't even really know where they're originating. Because this, the, the, the story of Western civilization is really the story of this conversation of great individuals, great thinkers talking about the great ideas about what they think about them and you know what truth is and what principles are and um and and striving to seek the truth and like hutchins said that's really the tradition is that everything needs to be discussed we've got to get our ideas out there it's all about engaging in the conversation around the ideas and what's happening today is that the intellectual elite are still doing this and we are unaware there are men and women right now who you have probably never heard of that are shaping the culture that you live in and, and, and you may not even know who they are. And you may not even understand the ideas that they're promoting. I think because we're such a materialistic society, we think that money rules the world or power rules the world, right? Like, like Trump's really the one making things happen or you know, the really, um, really super, super wealthy, like Bill Gates or somebody like that. They're the powerful ones that make things happen. But actually,
actually, they are also persuaded by ideas. And they are acting out the ideas. Some of these individuals are going, you know, the, the presidents of the United States go on retreats with these individuals and hear the ideas that they put forward. And it influences their thinking about themselves and about the world. And they act on the ideas. We are all always acting on our core ideas and values. And it's so important that we start to understand that these ideas are being put forward, that the elite are in a conversation still about these important ideas and that they are, that is being filtered down predominantly through our educational systems. The media and the educational systems disseminate the ideas of whoever is considered the most important thinkers of the time. That whoever seems to have the most awesome, revolutionary, new, cool idea that maybe hasn't been tried before, they're the ones that, that get a hearing and then people adopt what they're saying. The tradition of ancient Greece is the power of reason and the tradition of the Middle Ages is the power of, of theocracy and the theology. And so, you know, you have, you have a man like Muhammad. He has ideas, revolutionary ideas that run contrary to the traditions and the ways things are done. And so he puts forward his ideas and people love his ideas and they follow him. And those ideas make a massive impact for many, many, many generations still today. You know, you have Newton had ideas. Copernicus had ideas, right? And other people that you, whose names you may not know, like Locke or Rousseau or Nicomachus or any of these other great individuals, who had ideas and their ideas have become part of the fundamental framework through which the, the create have created the lens through which you and I see the world. Jack, um, Barzin wrote a book, Dawn to Decadence. And in that book, it's the history of the last 500 years of Western civilization. And he calls these ideas themes and he brings forward these major themes and then he follows them these themes through Western history for the last 500 years to try to help us see why we have become who we have become, why, why the world is the way that it is today. It makes a whole lot of sense why people are doing what they're doing and why they think the way that they think and why they believe what they believe. If you understand the ideas that have gotten us here. Now, this is really, really important. I'm going to read you this quote from Mortimer Adler. In, uh, this is in the Great Conversation Revisited, an article that he wrote, and this is so, so key. He says, now what he's referencing is they went back and they made a new set of the great books of the Western world and they included 20th century authors. And he says, you can't really tell if somebody's really a great author and if it's going to become a classic unless, you know, if, if there's a really a denseness of ideas and it's going to be a really pivotal work for like 100 to 150 years after they wrote so we're guessing here on who's going to be the most important. And so he's already written this in Topicon and he already has all that information there. And they're thinking, oh yeah, we'll get these 20th century works and we'll just integrate them in. You know, we already know what the 102 great ideas are. We already have this in Topicon written and, and we'll just put the references to those writings in, in, 
in the new version of the Syntopicon, and he finds that this is incredibly difficult to do. And, and he's having a terrible time trying to integrate these 20th century writings into the great book set. And this is, this is one of the conclusions that he draws about why that experience was so difficult. He says, there is a clear break between this century and the 25 centuries that precede it in the tradition of Western civilization. There are signs of discontinuity that do not show themselves in any of the preceding centuries. The unbroken continuity of the great conversation from Homer down to the end of the 19th century nearly stops there. Beginning with the 20th century, books of philosophy, of the natural sciences, of the social sciences, and of imaginative literature, innovations, departures, and novelties occur. Discrepancies become marked. Denials and dissentences are stressed that had not surfaced in any earlier century. Okay, so what he just said was the 20th century is different and was incredibly destructive. And when you get to the turn of the 20th century, you find that things that had been foregone conclusions that had been part of the Western way of thinking and the framework for 2,500 years, suddenly were not. It broke with fundamental assumptions, fundamental ideas about the way the world works by the time they got to the 20th century. And so now, you know, we're looking back at 200, 300 years ago and going, Boy, you know, like God was central and first principles were central and what's happened to natural law and why in the world are we so atheistic and all of these changes that have happened. And it's because of the ideas from the two or three centuries beforehand that came to fruition in the 20th century and we broke with traditions from 2,500 year traditions. This gets into a better understanding of what's happening now and what's happening in the world today. And I'm I'm not going to use this podcast to present you with the solutions. I'm just going to use this podcast to present you with the problem. So um, here's another problem that we face. This is Stephen R.C. Hicks um, in his book on postmodernism. He's talking about art and the history of art. He says... For a long time, critics of modern and postmodern art have relied on the isn't that disgusting strategy. By that, I mean the strategy of pointing out that given works of art are uh, trivial, in bad taste, a five-year-old could have made them, and so on. And they they have mostly left it at that. So these art critics go into the modern art world And they're like, this is so simple. A five-year-old could have made it. This is gross. This is disgusting. This is trivial. What's the point? The points have often been true. This is back to Hicks. But they have also always been tiresome and unconvincing. And the art world has been entirely unmoved. Of course, the major works of the 20th century art world are ugly. Of course, many are offensive. Of course, a five-year-old could, in many cases, have made an undistinguishable product. Those points are not arguable, and they are entirely beside the main question. The important question is, why has the art world of the 20th century adopted the ugly and offensive? 
Why has it poured its creative energies and cleverness into the trivial and the self-proclaimedly meaningless? Why did playing with cynicism and ugliness come to be the game you had to play to make it in the world of art? And it is because of the ideas that were put forward, especially in kind of in the 1700s, especially in the 1800s. Now, some of those names you're going to be familiar with. The context in which you'll really understand what I'm talking about is when I talk about Darwin and the modern concepts of evolution, right? And those were ideas. Darwin put forth new ideas and we've been fighting them. Marx put forth ideas and the 20th century played them out, right? And, you know, Freud put forth ideas and the 20th century has played them out. And you've heard of those men and you understand now, 150 years later, the impact that they've had. You've probably heard of John Dewey. You may have heard of William James. Some of them whose ideas have been really profound have made a real difference. Emerson put forth ideas. Poets put forth ideas. Artists put forth ideas. And they become infiltrated into the culture. You know, you think about um, you think about things like feminism. I, I I was listening to a woman recently, and somebody had uh, called her a feminist, and she was like, "Am I a feminist?" And she was kind of going on about that, and I was like, "I don't. I think, and I've thought this for a long time that most of us, and I didn't know really what feminism is. What is it? What is it not? What caliber of women or men started it? What was the?" purpose, what's it trying to do? It's a set of ideas that was put forth by certain people that are being played out all around us. You know, there are men like Sartre, Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, Heidegger, Foucault, Derrida. I don't know if you've ever heard their names, but they shape the culture you're living in right now. And if as mothers, we're completely ignorant of the ideas that are shaping the culture, then we're at a disadvantage. That doesn't mean we have to be locked up in our rooms studying 24 hours a day, but it means that we need to be turned on to this idea. We need to accept and understand that ideas rule the world, that ideas are governing our civilization, that they're coming from the minds and hearts of individuals who think and believe very differently than us and that they're taking hold in the hearts of minds of the people around us and that they're bearing fruit, good or bad fruit, depending on the quality of the idea. Now, this is another Hutchins quote from a different book of his called The Higher Learning in America. He says, a classic is a book that is contemporary in every age. That is why it is a classic. The conversations of Socrates raise questions that are as urgent today as they were when Plato wrote. In fact, they are more so because the society in which Plato lived did not need to have them raised as much as we do. We have forgotten how important they are. Such books are then a part and a large part of the permanent studies. They are so in the first place because they are the best books we know. How can we call a man educated who have never read any of the great books in the Western world? How can we say that we really know what's going on and we really have answers? If we haven't engaged in and spent time with the best books and we don't know the, the, the reigning ideas of our own time, it is so critical that we start to understand what ideas are being 
spouted and why they are and where they're coming from and what is the intellectual framework that makes them viable. People don't just latch on to ideas out of nowhere and just believe them because they just sound good in the moment or because they enable them to do what's wrong. They have a framework around them that makes them sound valid. They come from first principles and from key ideas that resonate with the human heart. And that is why people grab hold of them. If you were to read the original list of governing principles of the National Socialist Party that Hitler put forward, you would be shocked and amazed at how many you agreed with. Now that brings us back to this quote that I gave you at the very beginning. This brings us back to this quote. I'll read one more time. What is the end of our revolution? The tranquil enjoyment of liberty and equality, the reign of the eternal justice, the laws of which are graven, not on marble or stone, but in the hearts of men, even in the heart of the slave who has forgotten them, and in that of the tyrant who disowns them. I don't know about you, but that goes right to my heart. I believe that. I'm totally on board with that. I do believe there are laws, natural laws, first principles written on the heart of men. I've said it on this podcast before. It really, really resonates with me. But guess who said it? Maximilien Robespierre. If you know anything about the French Revolution, you know that name. And if you don't, I'll give you um, some context. This is an introduction to a speech that Robespierre gave um, in 1794, in February 1794. This is his speech called On the Principles of Political Morality to Justify the French Revolution. And this introduction is in a reader, uh, American Heritage, a reader by the Hillsdale Press. Inspired by Enlightenment principles, a group of prominent Frenchmen in 1789 began the French Revolution. Although the reformers initially demanded only some legislative power and limited political reforms, over time they came to reject traditional political values and forms. By early 1794, the dominant political faction known as Jacobins insisted on a comprehensive application of Enlightenment reason to every facet of public life. They abolished the monarchy, altered the week to have 10 days, replaced Christian public worship with the cult of reason, regulated prices and wages, and instituted universal manhood suffrage. The most prominent facet of this triumph of reason, however, was the reign of terror. An attempt to purify the French Republic through the systematic application of reason, it affected the execution of 20 to 40,000 people as counter-revolutionaries. As the leader of the Jacobins, Maximilien Robespierre, a lawyer from northern France, justified the reign of terror in the following speech to the French legislature. So Robespierre was largely responsible, if not, uh, he wasn't entirely responsible because he had people around him that, that supported the measures. But the reign of terror that we have heard so much about in history, when innocent men and women were carted off and killed at the guillotine or tortured in prison and left to die, lasted from September 5th, 1793 until July 28th, 1974, and ended with the death of Robespierre. The people around him finally could see, after 40,000 people were already dead, that the, con- that the ideas of Robespierre, although he used great words like principles and first principles and laws and liberty and equality, he was not founded on truth and that it was not leading to freedom. And they arrested him and killed him along with several of his closest supporters. Ideas matter. Ideas rule the world. 
And it's important for moms to start learning who is it that's putting forth these ideas? Why do these ideas have such great power? And how are they affecting the daily life that we find ourselves living in? I, I, I asked myself, you know, how could a man have 40,000 people killed in the name of truth and universal principles? And it makes me think again of our Mothers of Discernment event in Provo on October 19th. And I hope you'll come and we'll talk about some of these concepts and gain some principles of discernment and some tools and some questions we can ask to be better at discerning. But the bigger issue is to really become um, aware and awake to the ideas that rule the world. So in addition to doing some um, interviews like we've done in the past, and in addition to doing mission-driven stories and just podcasts that sound uh, fun to do, sharing, sharing thoughts and ideas, I'm going to start doing this fall some series. I really love to do one on feminism, on the history of, of education. We perhaps may touch on some worldviews. And going into, um, I, th- I think I'll do a series also on truth, beauty, and goodness as the governing um, values. You know, when I was talking about modern art and quoting Adler to you in terms of the break in the 20th century with past, with, with past centuries and, and the ideas that have ruled the West for 2,500 years, one of those key concepts is that the goal of art is no longer beauty. And that has been its goal for 2,500 years. And that break between um, a pursuit of beauty in in the arts and a break with the pursuit of truth in our educational pursuits are two of the really massive breaks with the past that have happened in the 20th century. So stay tuned, stay with me as we begin to explore some of these ideas, to look at the past, to look at the men and women who really brought forth these ideas and made feminism happen and made the 20th century happen and brought forth modernism and postmodernism that were living in right now. So I hope this has been insightful for you. I hope that you'll join us in the Facebook group for an after the show discussion uh, around ideas and some of the things that I've put forward today. And I'm sorry I haven't given you very many solutions yet. I've just presented the problem. I hope that it will inspire you to get engaged and to um, wake up my challenge for you is to engage more in the conversation around the get around the great ideas and to start picking up more classics where these ideas are found and talking about them with us in the Facebook group, in the MDM Academy, and anywhere that you can. And uh, we'll move forward this fall with some series on different areas where ideas are making a huge difference in our world. Thanks so much for joining me. If you don't have your free copy of The Mission Driven Life, head on over to themissiondrivenmom.com and grab that copy and I'll see you next time.